When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 240. Today's episode is all about managing big feelings. Adopting this phrase, I am a person learning to blank. So often in the face of uncertainty, we feel like we need to have all the answers right away. We say, I just moved to a new city. I need to have friends. I need to be thriving. I need this to be like the best experience of my life on day one. And so by switching our mindset and instead saying, I am a person learning to settle in a new city, learning to build new relationships. I'm a person learning to live through a global pandemic. I'm a person learning to cope with a lot of anxiety. It just allows us to give ourselves some much needed grace and then also shift our mindset to more of a learning mentality as opposed to this like I'm beating myself up. Basically, we're having a really unrealistic expectation that I need to know everything there is to know right now. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening for the first time, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'd love to share a review from Amy who says, what amazing energy. I love Melissa's vibe, super relatable, fun, and energizing. She has so much to share, focuses on really powerful topics, and asks fantastic questions of her interviewees. I always get a great nugget or two listening to her podcasts. Thank you so much for sharing this review. You know how it lights me up. And so I just want to send you some love right back. And now let's get to the good stuff. Do you have big emotions? How do you feel about them? Are you ashamed by them? Overwhelmed by them? If you don't have big feelings, have you ever asked yourself why? Do you not feel as deeply? Or do you just not show those feelings as much? Have you ever wondered why you are that way? Is it just how you are, as in it came naturally to you? Or have you been taught to keep that stuff in? I've always had big feelings. Ask my mom. (laughs) Even during the seven or so years in my 20s that I just held everything inside, I'd still have these big, tearful outbursts when I was alone. But I never really felt okay about my feelings. I got the message that they were too big or I was too dramatic. I got the message that it was up to me to just pull myself together and not let it affect me, which was probably why I did just that in between these moments. It was like a vicious cycle. Feel, feel bad, feel nothing. Feel, feel bad, feel nothing. When I started to learn the tools to actually process my past grief and traumas, it was like opening up Pandora's box of everything that I hadn't dealt with. But I wondered, why does it feel like I haven't touched this grief? I know that I shed plenty of tears during that decade all by myself in my room. But why or how am I just now processing it all? What was I doing before? I don't want to say I was doing it wrong because I don't think there's any wrong way to approach a big painful emotion like grief or sadness. But I do think that I was doing things to make these moments more intense while not offering myself an avenue for healing. I'd drink wine and think about how many terrible things had happened to me. I'd think about all the things that went wrong and what I didn't have anymore. I'd marinate in my victim story and then wonder why the future looked so bleak. But I didn't know any better, and I don't think most people do. To make matters worse, I was ashamed of these moments of catharsis. And because I was ashamed, I'd close up. 
I didn't ask for help. I didn't talk about what I was going through. Usually I'd just pop a molly and go to the next party and just hope I didn't end up crying in the bathroom with a group of girls doing lines on the bathtub. I remember thinking that I was alone, that I must have just had the worst possible luck because why did all of these things happen to me and not anyone else? What did I do to deserve this? There's no way anyone could know my pain or else they'd be a mess like I am, right? But the truth is, I probably knew dozens of people going through the exact same thing I was and pretending like it wasn't happening and numbing through another day. The problem is, we aren't given a handbook for our humanness. So we look to others and we model them, or we compare, or we judge, or we just pretend like nothing's happening. And then we suffer in silence and wonder why things don't get a whole lot better. But if we're all going through the hardships of life, it doesn't have to be that way. Even if you're not big on sharing your emotions with others, there are ways to help that emotional energy move through you rather than getting stuck. And that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Liz Foslian. She's an expert on how to make work better and co-author and illustrator of the best-selling book, Big Feelings, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings. Her work's been featured in Good Morning America, New York Times, The Economist, Time, TED, and CNN. And she's given keynotes about emotions at work organizations like Google, LinkedIn, NPR, and Spotify. So three key things we will learn are the seven most common big feelings and how to move through them, how to put a positive spin on envy, and how to bust perfectionism by replacing avoidance goals with approach goals. Plus, honestly, so much more. This entire episode is a toolbox. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Liz Fosley into the show. Hi, thanks for having me. What inspired you to dive into all of the big feelings that most of us try so hard to avoid? <laughs> yes, great question. So my co-author Molly and I in February of 2019 actually published a book called No Hard Feelings, which was all about emotions at work. So looked at things like leadership, communication, teamwork. And I would say probably around September of that same year, Kind of ironically, we both started struggling with really hard feelings. So Molly had moved to a new city where she didn't know anyone. She had a lot of chronic pain issues that led to her falling into despair. I was commuting three hours a day. I do not recommend. It was horrible. And then my father-in-law was also losing his 10-year battle with cancer. So it was one of those situations for both of us where we found ourselves saying the affirmations exercising, seeing therapists, and yet trying to change what we were doing and saying to ourselves didn't really change how we felt. So the question we had was like, what do you do when you're grappling with these really big, hard feelings? And we pitched that as a book to Penguin, our publisher. Again, this is like fall of 2019. And they passed. They said, this is kind of depressing. Is there really an audience for this? We're not sure. Like, we love our team there, but it was... Yeah, it was hard to hear. Fast forward, March 2020, pandemic hits, you know, like 
there's so much going on in people's lives. And Penguin actually reached back out to us and was like, remember that book about the big feelings? We want to publish that. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it came about before the pandemic, but the pandemic really like allowed the book to happen. I can picture like the decision maker for Penguin <laughs> sitting there like with these big feelings and they're like, damn it, I denied that book. Okay, yeah. let's start it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's interesting because I, one of my best friends that I had a, a couple years ago, she moved away, so we're not quite as close, but still a good friend of mine. One of the issues that she didn't realize that she had was feeling like her big feelings were too much for people, especially in relationships. Mm. And so she was always very well composed. But then when you got to know her, she you realized that that composure was because not because she was always composed, but because she was so afraid of showing certain emotions because she was afraid she'd be judged or rejected. And I, on the other hand, have always been like, I have big feelings, deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a time that I, I saw them as bad. I definitely remember hearing the messaging that my big feelings were not accepted, but when I'm really looking over the course of my life, for some reason, I'm like, well, I, I really, maybe I just had no control over it. So I'm like, I can't do anything about this. So <laughs> if they're bad, then I'm bad. But yeah. you talk about how when you were doing your research, you found a theme of seven big feelings that came up the most in the modern world. What are those big feelings? Yeah. So in the book, we cover uh, the seven big feelings that are uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. And we sometimes get people who accurately point out that like comparison or uncertainty are not specifically emotions. And the reason we went with those was we, to identify these seven things, I'll say, it was partially based on what we had experienced. But then we also spoke to about 1,500 people all around the world, all different ages, backgrounds, races, genders. And What we found was when we would ask about envy, which is essentially usually what you feel when you're comparing yourself to someone else, people sort of responded. But when we said the word comparison, it was like, oh, yes, I struggle with that so much. Same thing with perfectionism and uncertainty. So we ended up, we really wanted to meet people where they were. So that's why we chose those specific words. And I found it really interesting because I think it speaks to how even when we're engaging in a behavior, like we're comparing ourselves to someone else, we still often suppress the emotional reaction to the point that we don't even identify ourselves as feeling envious or jealous, but we do identify ourselves as comparing. So yeah, they're, they're not all feelings, <laughs> quote unquote, but the, the book, the chapters eventually get to the emotions that these behaviors trigger within us. Even while you were just telling that story, I could totally relate. I'm like, oh, I'm not envious. Oh, wait, I compare myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because there's messaging around envy where it feels like a fault. Like that doesn't even feel like something I'm struggling with as much as like, oh my gosh, you're not supposed to be envious. Even the Bible says, don't be, (laughs) thou shalt not envy, you know? And so it goes so deep. But I'm excited about this episode because I love episodes that are kind of like a toolbox for people that are dealing with these things. So I'd love to just kind of go through one by one and and get some of the myths and then some tips to work through each one. So let's Mm -hmm. start with uncertainty. What are some of the myths around uncertainty? Yeah, so the first myth is that we can ever really be certain about the future. Um, I think it feels really comforting to be like, the pandemic has been ridiculous. Everything is up in the air. I just wish I could go back to a time when the future was more certain. And in truth, like you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so I think that can actually be kind of comforting to look back and say, I've always existed in a place of uncertainty and I've been okay. The second big myth that we encountered a lot in our conversations with people was this idea that being anxious in the face of uncertainty means that something bad is going to happen. So when we feel anxiety, it's really easy to lean into that and be like, oh, this is an indicator. This is my gut telling me that the world is going to fall apart tomorrow. And so what's true is that we actually, it's not a good indicator. So researchers have, there's this interesting study where they had a group of people, they split them up into two groups. 
one group had a 99% chance of getting this harmless but painful electric shock. And the other group had a 50% chance. And then the researcher said, how much would you be willing to pay not to receive this shock? And so you would assume that the group that had a 50% chance should pay less because it's way less likely that they'll get this shock. And they were willing to pay just as much as the group that was for sure going to get the shock. So it's just like, we just like really don't like to know what's happening next. We'd actually almost, some research indicates, we'd rather know that tomorrow is going to be a really bad day than have it be a 50% chance of being a bad day. Because at least in the former case, we can like prepare and we feel like we have some control. So that's been actually for me personally, really helpful to keep in mind is just because I feel really stressed out. It's not, it doesn't mean like, oh, this is a signal that tomorrow everything is going to explode on me. First of all, who are these scientists that are always shocking people? The amount of studies that come back where it's like, yeah, scientists sit behind there and and like either convince people that they're shocking someone else or they are shocking people. I heard a study about some, I thought you were going to name this study, how people that knew they were going to get shocked, like they were just getting shocked over and over again, they handled it way better than people that got shocked 50% of the time because not only were they feeling the pain, but they were also anticipating, is it going to come or is it not going to come? Totally. So scientists are all evil, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) I I had the same reaction. At one point I told Molly, my co-author, I was like, what is going on with these electric shocks? (laughs) They ran out of mice. So how do we work through that uncertainty so that we're not letting it dictate what we're willing to do or our current state of mind? I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. 
Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. So how do we work through that uncertainty so that we're not letting it dictate what we're willing to do or our current state of mind? Yeah. So one thing that's really important is to sit with the anxiety. So a lot of us engage in what psychologists call anxious fixing, where you get up, you have this nebulous doom cloud over you. And instead of just taking a moment to try to understand what is driving your anxiety, you jump into action. So I used to do this all the time. I would vacuum clean. I would make coffee. I would make send emails. I would hammer out my to-do list. And so at the end of the day, I had done a lot of stuff. I had driven myself to the point of exhaustion, but I had never really confronted what was underlying my anxiety. So I didn't feel any better. So the first is just like, stop and sit with it. And that's going to be uncomfortable, but that allows you to figure out like, what is the need? Do I just need to take some time? Is there a certain scenario that is causing my anxiety? Can I take some steps so that if that happens, I would feel okay about it? And the second tip I'll give that I found really helpful is adopting this phrase, I am a person learning to blank. So often in the face of uncertainty, we feel like we need to have all the answers right away. We say, I just moved to a new city. I need to have friends. I need to be thriving. I need this to be like the best experience of my life on day one. And so by switching our mindset and instead saying, I am a person learning to settle in a new city learning to build new relationships. I'm a person learning to live through a global pandemic. I'm a person learning to cope with a lot of anxiety. It just allows us to give ourselves some much needed grace and then also shift our mindset to more of a learning mentality as opposed to this like, I'm beating myself up. Basically, we're having a really unrealistic expectation that I need to know everything there is to know right now. I love that little affirmation. I actually wrote it down just because mm-hmm. sometimes I have noticed, especially when it's those underlying big feelings, like you've talked about how a lot of times we're reacting and we don't even necessarily know what the root of this is, or we haven't sat with it long enough to even figure out that it's happening and we just realize that we are dropping things or missing things or like feeling frantic. And then all of a sudden it's like, what is going on in my body? Okay. Here. And so that simple reframe allows the judgment, I think, to just melt because that is one of the things I've noticed is underlying a lot of the times when I'm struggling is it's not just that struggle. It's also, I should be here or I should be productive or I should be over these types of things. Or, and so those shoulds are really just judgment about how I'm handling this and allowing that yourself to speak and hear yourself speak and actually have those words that you're a person learning to what blank. It's, it's just a reframe for all of that, that, like I said, automatically kind of dissipates that judgment. Totally. Yeah. I have that too. I have so many shoulds banging around my brain and it's really hard to let go of them. So yeah, I've always gravitated towards like the phrases or kind of even the small things that help you put those away for a while. I don't react well to shoulds at all. Just this morning, my mom is championship shoulder. (laughs) And maybe it's just me because I'm like an only child. But she, this morning, was like, you should change your voicemail. My voicemail right now says something like, I am notoriously bad at checking my voicemails, so please send me a text. And she's like, you should change your voicemail. Instead of saying that you're bad at this, blah, 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 you should say this. And I was, or just say you prefer text. And And my immediate response was resistance. (laughs) I was just like, no. And then I I actually stopped and I was like, I ended up using her suggestion, but back at her, I was like, which I agree with her, focus on the strength. I'm better at text. So I get where she was coming Uh from, but the way it was framed, I was just like, nope. And so instead I was like, I respond better to suggestions when they're not framed as things that I should do. (laughs) That's very constructive. (laughs) So comparison now, we already sort of touched on comparison and the link to envy. 
What are some of the myths about comparison? Yeah, I think the the first myth is that what, you know, kind of what you see is what's going on in someone's life. And so this is very true on social media. People usually present, especially on like an Instagram, the most curated version of themselves. So you are now comparing yourself lying on the couch, like eating Doritos to someone like in you know, Italy having the time of their life. And you just assume that like everyone's constantly on these amazing vacations. Why aren't you? So you're only seeing someone's highlight reel. But this is also true in life. So not just on social media. If you're at a party, if someone gets promoted, you know, you're not seeing them when they're really sad on a Sunday night alone in their room. So again, it's just, it's easy to only compare yourself to what's visible and then forget about all the invisible things people might be going through. And then the second myth is that envy is bad. You know, like I think especially women, I've definitely had felt this. There's this like women should support other women. And so to be jealous of someone else is really, really bad because you, it's, you know, you're, you don't want them to succeed. And that's not necessarily true. Like if you envy someone, usually it actually means that they have something you want. And so especially at work, that's useful to know. Like if you envy someone in one kind of job, but not in another, you probably want job A and not job B. And that can help you guide your career path. I personally, when I first started working at a previous company, there was this woman that I was really envious of. She just seemed like so confident and creative and amazing. And she actually ended up being, still is like a really good mentor for me. Again, because it was like, oh, she has something that I want for myself. Like she's really figured some of this stuff out. And instead of beating myself up for envying her, I was like, this is a signal and I should just ask her if she can help me in my career. And that worked out really well for me. So I think it's, again, this, I'll probably say this a lot throughout the episode, but not judging yourself and instead trying to see what that emotion is telling you. I love that. We can basically use that that feeling of envy rather than beating ourselves up about it, but to pinpoint the things that we value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Like we talked about, so often judgment is our default. And so it's going to take a while to be like, okay, I'm feeling I'm feeling envy. Oh man, man, now I'm judging myself <laughs> for the envy. Wait, where is this coming from? Even something like shifting it to one of the things that I use when I'm feeling that sort of envy is I shift it to gratitude. I like what you said even better because it makes it gives me clarity at the same time. But I have been stopping and being like, how amazing is it to be surrounded by people that are doing this? Because it's just showing me what's possible. It's making it more likely that I could potentially accomplish that because I'm seeing it normalized. And so uh, sometimes it's difficult to be around somebody who has everything that you want. But at the same time, it's like, if you had never even seen that, you'd barely know it was possible. And Mm -hmm. you would doubt yourself even more every step of the way towards potentially reaching that. So I love that one. Yeah. I also, I was talking with a friend about very similar and she gave this advice that I have found super useful, which was also saying like, I haven't done that yet. So if it's like, oh, they got promoted or they went on this vacation, instead of just feeling sad, you're like, well, I haven't gotten promoted yet. I think often we also compare ourselves to people who like have been in the workforce 10 years longer than we have, or, you know, just are are, just had a lot more experience in a certain place. So keeping in mind that the future is still wide open for you. And just ticking away like one step at a time before you know it, 10 years goes by. I was actually just telling somebody how long I had been doing yoga and I I hadn't really told anyone that in a really long time. And so I was like used to saying four years. And then I looked back and I was like, it's been 15, 15 years. (laughs) Now in every room, I'm pretty much the longest yogi. So yeah, that time goes so fast if we're just focused on the journey rather than that big gap to where we want to be. So the next one is anger. What are some of the myths that we have that make anger more difficult for us? Yeah, the first is that there's like a specific event that triggers your anger. So I think it's really easy, you know, like your partner loads the dishwasher incorrectly and you just kind of lose your temper and it's like, oh, it's the dishwasher. 
And usually it's not just the dishwasher, you know, it's like you haven't slept well, or you've been arguing about something else, or it's like, it's the 15th time that they loaded the dishwasher in the wrong way. So I think it's, again, it's, we tend to, when we have a strong reaction, really focus on the moment in which we had that strong reaction, but it's really valuable to take a step back and be like, okay, what's the broader context? Because that's going to let you figure out, like, I really need to have a conversation about this other thing, or I haven't eaten at all and I need to eat something like, you know, this advice, like never go to bed angry, which I hate. I think just like go to bed angry because sometimes you're tired. There's so (laughs) many times when I just feel myself at night, like starting to pick fights and I'm just like, okay, I'm like a toddler. Like I just need to be put to bed. I don't need to like be over here, like starting boxing matches because I'm cranky and tired. So I think that's a big one. And then you know, same again of like of casting aside the judgment. Like anger is really evolution's way of indicating that there was a violation. And so in with many people I spoke to, they said like, especially women or people from underrepresented groups, they were like, I'm not actually an angry person. I don't feel anger very much. And then as we talked more, it would come out that they did. They just had really been suppressing it to the point where they weren't even aware because they just didn't want to present themselves as angry or they were afraid to. So I think, again, it's like, you know, you shouldn't really lean into the emotion and like lash out right away. But it's totally fine to feel upset when someone has violated your boundaries. I have this epic visual of like, your partner, you throwing a fit and your partner being like, she's overtired and just like taking you to bed. <laughs> he, will, he will actually very nicely. He's learned he has to be very gentle, but he'll be like, Liz, do you want to go to bed? And I'll be like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine using that with a partner too, giving them grace. Like I mm-hmm. was just going through something similar, the dishwasher example just made me laugh (laughs) because I think I just used a similar example like why can't my husband put the Tupperware away right you know like the it's been like that for two and a half years the the rectangle ones are on the (laughs) one side and the square ones are on the other why are they all mismatched it's like the easiest shape sorting my toddler can do it but anyway (laughs) it was funny because yeah I was like semi-frustrated about that and then he like kind of snapped at me and then I was like wait, I'm hungry and he's stressed about a webinar he's about to hold. (laughs) I'm going to give us both grace and just step out. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's also funny going back to like some people who don't identify themselves as angry. Like it's really useful to understand your anger triggers. So if you know when I'm hungry, I tend to be more cranky. And if you don't know what your triggers are, ask the person you live with or someone who loves you. And they will immediately, (laughs) like my husband, I asked him this and he was like, oh, you hate loud chewing. Like you will lose your mind if someone's chewing gum next to you. And I was like, huh, that's true. I had not been aware of that in myself. So (laughs) if you need to figure out what it is, someone around you will be able to tell you. I know that you teach about understanding your expression styles to better communicate your feelings. Is that sort of what you're touching on right now? Yeah. So there's different kinds of ways to express, especially anger. Like there's generally also different ways of expressing emotions. So at a baseline, we tend to be under emotors, over emotors, or even emotors. There's not good or bad. It's just like, are you an open book? So it sounds like you said you've had big feelings. You've talked about them. You're probably more on the over emotor side and your friend might be more on the under emotor side where it's like, you just hold it in. You don't share as much. And similar trends show up in anger. So there's kind of four tendencies we talk about. There's the anger suppressor. So this is the person who often doesn't identify themselves as someone who ever gets angry and they really bury their feelings. And this isn't healthy because suppressing your anger usually just comes out in kind of unhealthy ways. So this is where it's really useful to figure out like, what are my triggers? How can I more tune into this emotion so that again, you can take healthy steps to move away from it, to feel better. Projector, these are people that express their anger pretty aggressively. So this is someone who probably needs to put some more time between the event and their reaction. Like you don't want to be punching holes in the wall. You don't want to be, I would say words are like toothpaste. Once they're out, you can't put them back in the tube. So you you don't want to just like lean in. right shitting on somebody's bed, Amber Heard. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, it gets dark. Um, yeah, her next partner is like, "What's your expression style?" Yeah. She's like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, I would say not healthy. <laughs> and then anger controller is kind of similar to suppressor. Like these people know that they're angry, but they're just really trying to control it. And then the healthiest that we should all aspire to be is an anger transformer. So this is someone who accepts that they're feeling angry, understands what they might need to feel better, and then takes steps to get to that better place. That all makes so much sense. And and I think the most important part is, again, realizing that this is a big emotion that is not bad, that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. need mean judgment. There's so many ways that we can gain information from that anger and even use it to fuel change or spark creativity, which I know is another thing that you teach. So there's so many positive use cases for anger. And if we can get over our own getting stuck in that judgment realm, then we can actually get to those deeper layers to see what's in it for us. So the next one I'm excited to talk about is burnout. (laughs) I I am feeling a little bit of that. I actually just started like mapping out my hours on what I do. I'm like, why do I feel so tired? Like, let me see where I have extra pockets. And I, mm. I've i been <laughs> writing down the last week and I'm like, oh, because even with childcare help and some help from my husband and having like a whole day on Saturday, I still have my baby for 55 to 65 hours a week. <laughs> I'm wow. also working 20 to 30 hours a week. I go to yoga like four hours a week. And then I, I walk at least 14 hours a week. I'm like, no wonder I have no time. Yeah. What are some of the myths that we have around burnout? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard. And sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. (laughs) And it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot mindlove. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are some of the myths that uh, we have around burnout? Well, I want to stop for it. Like, I love the sort of time audit idea. I think often we just don't even realize how much we've taken on until we see it's like, oh, wow, 50 hours. (laughs) That's not a joke. So I kind of want to do that for myself. Um, Oh, and wait till you have your baby, because I will tell you (laughs) around the eight month mark, it gets progressively more intense to where your whole day is just a giant kettlebell workout. Like you're like swinging a 20 pound child, either which way, like I saw a picture of myself from the back and I'm like, damn those muscles. (laughs) I didn't even know I was working out. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) I know. Well, I, I'm, so yeah, I'm like eight months pregnant right now. And I, you know, I, everything is a workout already. Like getting out of bed is like a full-fledged effort where I'm panting at the end of it. So I can't even imagine what it's like having like a wiggling toddler (laughs) Um, or baby. Yeah. So when it comes to burnout, I think when we talk about burnout, we often just think about like being sick on the couch or just sort of the worst, worst moment of it. 
And in fact, one of the people I interviewed said that burnout first, it will actually tap you on the shoulder with a feather many times before it hits you with the bus. And so it's really important to listen to the early warning signs because you don't want to get to that really dark place where it's like, wow, I really need like a week off to even start to feel like myself again. And some of the early signs are you're not taking care of yourself. You're cutting out activities you know are good for you. The thought of like not really getting sick, but having a cold where you have some kind of excuse to just lie down all day sounds nice is usually a sign that it's like, ooh, you're pushing yourself too hard. And then one that seems to really resonate with people is this concept of revenge bedtime procrastination. So it's like, you've been running around all day, it's night, you go to bed, you're exhausted. And instead of getting the sleep that you need, you're on TikTok or you're on Instagram or you're like texting or doing whatever it is online, reading articles. And none of those are inherently bad. But when it turns into an activity that's kind of self-sabotaging, where you're like actually making yourself more tired it's a sign that you just haven't had enough time during the day to decompress. So you're trying to like claw back some kind of control over your time by cutting into your sleep. And it's a really dangerous cycle because then you're more tired the next day. Then you like still don't have the focus to carve out space for yourself. And then it like just gets worse and worse. So I think it's just really trying to tune into how you're feeling, like thinking of your well-being as a state of action as opposed to something that's passive. Like, I'll just feel better at some point versus I need to do a time audit. I need to look at my day tomorrow and maybe cut something out if I'm really feeling exhausted. Those are such good points. The time audit has been so helpful because, and I think the biggest thing is because I it helped me reduce my judgment for myself because mm-hmm. I'm like, what? what's even happening? I haven't had a ton of time to work. Like, I've just been caring for this child which I need to remove that sentence from my vocabulary. Just caring for a child is the hardest job I've ever had in my life. (laughs) So it's just like, and there's, it's not 40 hours. It's like 70 hours. He's got 70 waking hours during the week. So yeah. uh, And that kind of brings me into our next one, which is perfectionism. And it's, the mom world, mm-hmm. I have not really suffered from perfectionism as much as I have now. And that's saying a lot because I built a business. And I think that's one of the first things that it started with was being like, this has to be perfect before I get it out. And and really understanding the idea that you have to get things out imperfectly because your definition of perfect is just going to keep changing the better you get or the further you get on your goal. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I already had to work through it with that, started to kind of get a handle on it, still something I have to watch for. But then motherhood comes in and it's just a whole different ball game because it's th- this whole lifestyle and every little thing is a decision and so many moms on the internet are like, there is one right way and I am the Mm. one who has it. (laughs) So what are some of the myths that we hold around perfectionism? Yeah, I think you just nailed one, which is like, there is one right way to do something or there's like one definition of success. Yeah, I mean, if I asked you for your perfect day, it would probably look kind of different than my perfect day. And so already we're starting to see that like this concept of getting to perfect is inherently flawed because that is a very subjective thing. But I think a lot of it comes down to just feeling like you are only deserving of love or praise if you are quote unquote perfect. Like it's an interesting thing because a lot of people who suffer from perfectionist tendencies actually don't identify as perfectionists because they say like, I'm not perfect. I'm failing in these 15 ways. So how on earth could I be a perfectionist? And it's like, well, the fact that you labeled yourself as failing in these ways means you are a perfectionist. So I think that's a big one too, is, you know, there's, there is like healthy striving is when you want to get a hundred percent on the test, you get a 94 and you feel pretty good. Cause it's a, it's an A, it's a pretty good score. You look up like the question you missed, but overall you feel confident and you move on. Perfectionism is when you get like a 98 And you just really obsess over that one question you didn't get right for the next week. And it's really limiting because instead of just being like, that was pretty good. I know what I did wrong. I'll do better next time. You just like lose yourself in this constant vicious cycle of like, why didn't I get this? What was wrong with me? So kind of a lot in that. But I think one is just there is no clear definition of perfection. You don't need to be perfect to be loved. I think when you think about the people in your life, 
that you care about, it's probably because they've been vulnerable with you because you've seen them not at their best um, and you've kind of shared and gone through that with each other. And then the last is you don't need to have everything in order to be actually suffering a lot from perfectionism. I'm thinking about my husband when you talked about like missing that one thing. He has two big stories. One of them was way back in high school. And you can tell how deep these things are because the fact that you can still see a little bit of emotion and it's been Mm. a really long time since he's been in high school and it was with a a wrestling tournament. He was like the top. Everyone thought he was going to specific lengths with this, with wrestling. And the helmet that they had ended up being like too small for his head. Long story short, it totally ruined his biggest match and like it's like this thing he still holds on to and then it all came flooding back because he was on American Ninja Warrior season seven and they have it's a really intense process they do a whole practice round like pre-finals and then the finals go along and he was like one of the top going Uh through this obstacle course and the next day his toe touched the water he didn't even fall and they X'd him out and he would be in the shower for months at a time every shower would last like 20 minutes and I'd come in and I'd be like are you just ruminating over your toe touching the water right now like (laughs) we need to get out of that and so (laughs) one of the ways that you talk about working through perfectionism that I loved is replacing avoidance goals with approach goals Can you explain how we do that? Yeah. So I used to be like the queen of setting myself avoidance goals. And that is when the goal is not to fail at something. So I had a lot of social anxiety. So going to a party, I'd be like, I just don't want to be awkward at this party. I don't want people, I don't want to say anything that's accidentally weird. Or I just like, it was all about this negative stuff. Or at work, I would get, let's say that I had to give a presentation to the team. I'd be like, I just don't want to look stupid. I don't want to fail. I don't want them to think I don't deserve to be here. And an approach goal is in like, so the thing with avoidance goals is like, if you achieve it. So if I would go to a party and I would achieve not being super awkward, it never felt that good because I had just like not been awkward. And that's not like a super great accomplishment. (laughs) So an approach goal is when instead of saying, I don't want to fail. You actually set yourself an exciting goal. So I'm going to go to this party and I want to like really engage with one person and get to know them. And when you achieve that, it actually feels really, really good. And so it's one, it's not centered around failure. And two, it really changes again, your mindset of like, as opposed to just having this inner monologue of like, oh, don't do this. Don't do that. It's like, hey, who at this party seems like someone I could chat with? This person, we're really connecting. I'm curious. I really want to like get to know them. In the presentation context, it's like, what presentation would I give if I just wanted to really put my best self out there? And again, that's way more motivating, way more exciting than I'm going to give a presentation where I don't look dumb. Like It's just not setting yourself up for success. So even as you start to set goals for yourself or like if you catch yourself thinking this, like, I don't want to fail at this, really stopping and saying, what's the best possible outcome? What's like a cool thing that could happen if I had this opportunity? And one kind of mindset shift here is instead of saying like, oh, I have to do this, like I have to go to this party, I have to whatever, saying like, I get to, I have this cool opportunity, what can I do with it? I will say my parents live in Chicago. And after I shared that one with my dad, he would call, he called me like all last winter and was like, I don't have to shovel the driveway. I get to shovel the driveway. I was like, okay, dad. dad. Yeah, I was like, it doesn't apply to everything in life. Yeah, but that's his joke goal for the whole, his his joke for the whole, dad joke for the whole winter. Yeah, got it a lot. I actually just was just about to order a tumbler for my husband that says really bad dad jokes because he's totally embracing the Mm. bad dad jokes. And it had a one star underneath. <laughs> it's like, this is, whoever designed this tumbler is a genius. So I love that. What are some of the myths that we have around despair? And I know this is such a, despair is such a heavy feeling anyways. And I know a lot of people who experience despair, especially in the last two years. So what are we dealing with as far as myths? I know a lot of people who experienced despair, especially in the last two years. So 
what are we dealing with as far as myths? Yeah, I think the first is, so to provide some context, um, my co-author Molly at the beginning of this chapter shares that she had these really difficult ongoing chronic health issues. And she eventually just started to like not feel like she wanted to live. And so she never, she never thought she was going to take action on it, but she had these kind of ideation thoughts. And one of the things that we talked about with despair in the book is the fact that like you are the only one who has had this or that it means that you're forever broken or that there's something like deeply wrong with you. And because there's such a stigma around this, I think it does, it does, you feel isolated in it. And that's when it gets really scary and also really dangerous to yourself. As opposed to, I think if we were all kind of more open around like, yeah, it's hard. Like there are days when it's just a struggle to get up, you know, like I've had days like that. My co-author has had days like that and it can get better. Like it doesn't mean that you will feel like this forever It doesn't mean that you should or will take action on some of these darker thoughts. But I think it's just so important to hear that message of just like, even when you look around at people who seem to be thriving and seem to be doing well in life, often you will find that they went through a period of despair. And again, this is not to say like, just feel better. One day it'll get better. Like it's not to minimize, like often, most of the time you actually do need professional help and you should reach out and get that um, or contact someone. But I think it's when we put this veil of secrecy around it, that's when we lose sight of the fact that like, it's fundamental. It's like, okay, like you can emerge from this dark place. I've been there and it's so scary to talk about because it's hard to even understand what's going on within yourself when you're like, I don't want to live anymore, but I'm not Mm -hmm. suicidal. You know, like it's shaky grounds to communicate to hear, Mm -hmm. and you never really know how somebody else is going to receive that. It's definitely a heavy one. But one of the things that I know you teach and also that has really been helpful for me is to realize that your feelings ebb and flow, and this Mm -hmm. too shall pass. And as heavy as it is and as long-lasting as this moment feels like it's going to be, it's like the, I don't know if anyone's used the Headspace app, but it talks about how it's cloudy and rainy, but there's sunshine just beyond mm. the clouds. It's so hard to like remember in those moments, but it is something worthwhile to keep drilling into your head when you're feeling that, because I know it can feel like you're just at the bottom of a hole that you'll never come out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think it also makes it less scary to have those feelings. Like, just to be like, okay, and, and this is something we talk about in the chapter too, is the power of this thing called time chunking, where it's like, sometimes what you need to do is just get through the next moment and get through the moment after that until you can sleep or until like you do get to a place where you're feeling better. And so sometimes it's like, I just need to make it through this day in really hard moments. It's like, I need to breathe through the next minute, like quite literally that's the thing that I need to focus on right now. Um, So I think it's this combination of, yeah, like you're saying, accepting that there is sunshine at some point, but while you're going through like the rainstorm, just focus on like the one foot in front of the other. And that's, that's all you need to focus on in those moments. And I know that you also teach setting a really small goal each day. Is that the kind of goal that you're actually talking about where it's like just breathe through the next minute or are you talking about other types of maybe more tangible goals? Yeah, it definitely, it kind of depends on like where you are in, in despair, like in the really darkest moments, the goal is like, just hold on, like just breathe through this very scary, like sad moment. And then once you start to feel better or like I don't even want to say better, like, but you feel like more capable of doing things. So when I was going through a period of despair, I remember for me, the goal that I had one day was walking around the block. And that felt terrible because I was like, I consider myself a high achiever. I used to be able to do all kinds of things. And today I'm just going to like walk around the block. That's pathetic. And and just like getting rid of that and be like, no, no, today, (laughs) that is the goal. Like you are going to walk around the block. And then usually hopefully what happens is it kind of starts this positive cycle of like, I did feel a lot better. And so the next day it was like, okay, today I'm going to walk to the grocery store. Um, So when we say set a small goal for yourself, it is really context dependent. 
And, you know, now, like, I feel pretty good nowadays. My small goal nowadays is, you know, I'm not even in despair anymore, but I'll still set myself like a daily goal. And it's much more ambitious than walk around the block. But I think it's just like checking in with yourself and doing something that feels like somewhat of a stretch, but you know, will be good for you in the long run. And my addition to that would be to actually write those small goals down, even if it is Mm -hmm. super small, because there is something about checking something off that makes you feel like you've done something. And I know that it is so easy, even when you have big goals that you're actually accomplishing, it can feel like there's just so much to do. You're still not where you want to be. And there's something about that act of just checking something off, especially if you can go back and look at how far you've come or look at at the fact that you've still done something, even if you feel like crying in a ball on your floor for seven days, you know, (laughs) at least you walked around the block seven different times. So that's helpful. And so our final big feeling that we're going to cover is regret. What are some of the myths that we have about regret? Yeah. The biggest myth that I've seen pop up a lot, especially recently, is this idea that you can live a life of no regrets and kind of the signing up for life. You can only choose one path, even if it's a really exciting one. And so you're inevitably going to have moments where there's this really good writer who talks about like the ghost ship of your life, where every day you're essentially picking one path. And it's really normal sometimes to stand back and reflect and look at like the ghost ship that was the life you didn't pick and just imagine like what that life might've looked like. And so regret is just like, one of the most universal feelings researchers have found that like across societies, across ages, everything, like people just experience regret. So again, it's, you're not alone and you also can't avoid it. And then the second piece of it is that like regret actually, you know, it's, it's incredibly painful, but it can help you make a better decision in the future. And so it's, again, it's like sitting with that pain that actually provides the motivation to pick something else next time. So the example I share in the book is I, my grandmother lives in Europe. My parents are immigrants. And so she died when I was in my early twenties and growing up, I had always gone with my mom back to my grandmother's house. And it was for me just like, so like I had such good memories around it. And it also felt like a connection to a larger, I'm also an only child. So it's like just me in the U S it just felt like a connection to this like family that I didn't always feel like I had. So when my grandma died, my mom and her sister had to make this decision of like, were they going to sell the house? And they didn't know they were going to go back and kind of figure it out. And my mom asked me to fly back with her. And I had just started a new job. And I said, no, I, I like looking back, like it just, I, it like makes me nauseated to think about, I like have no idea what the heck was so important that I was like, I just can't leave my work for two weeks right now and do this. And so my mom and her sister ended up like selling the house, cleaning it out. And I, to this day, I'm always like, if I become a billionaire for whatever reason, I'm going to buy that house. Like I just want it back in our family. And the thought of like my mom on this eight hour international flight by herself, going to pick up the pieces of her mom's life alone with like, it's horrifying to me. But my dad had some heart troubles last year. And my parents, again, were like, you don't have to come home. And I was like, no, like I'm coming home. I'm dropping work. I never want to do this again, where I just like 10 years later, I'm just so ashamed of myself for the choice I made. So, and, but it has like, I can never take that back, but it has now it's just like, whatever, like when my family needs me, when my friends need me, I will always, always prioritize that because I never want to feel that again. And so it's not to say that like the regret is like a good thing. Um, I wish I weren't feeling it, but it does, it has shaped my value system in a good way. I really found some healing in that example, Mm -hmm. actually, because I have so many things in my life that could very easily be regrettable. (laughs) And a lot of them I've, processed it by just saying, you know, so many of those things made me who I am and I don't want to change who I am, which means I can't change some of those really big, stupid things that I did that nearly at the time I thought ruined my life. But now I just Mm kind of see steered me onto a path that I like. And so how can I regret those things? So that's been sort of easier to process. But then there's another one. This is kind of a lighthearted one. Uh, There was a guy that I knew when I was younger and Now I can process it in a totally different way because for a long time, the story was I did something that sort of messed it up and then he was the one that got away for a long time. Mm. 
Now looking back, that thing that I did that was that I messed up, I was I was sexually assaulted. It took me like 15 mm. years to realize that like that wasn't me at all. It was my first mm. time drinking. I was taken advantage of by a much older person and his friends. Anyways, mm. that happened, steered this off course, but for a long time I didn't even really realize like we were friends, but I could feel like sort of a oh, yeah, the one that got away or whatever. Mm. And then there was a time, this was a long time ago, but in my mid-20s that I like looked at that relationship and I played out the life I would have had if, if nothing would have happened or we would have ended up together. And I was like, I don't like that life at all. Like That mm. is not me. I'm a traveler. I'm like a free bird over here. This person is like still in our hometown. Like it absolutely would not have worked. And so that was kind of a, a healing moment and, and mm. it wasn't a big deal. But the one that I really relate to you about was when my dad was dying, I went home one weekend and it was one of the hardest weekends of my life, like really actually settling in that he was dying and mm -hmm. he was so frail and he had always been like the strong one, just invincible. And I don't think I ever really believed he was going to die of cancer. And so it was such a hard weekend. And then my aunt calls me the, like four days after I left and she was just like, you should come this weekend. Your dad's not doing mm. well. And I was like, I cannot do that again this weekend. I'll come next weekend. And he died that weekend. Mm. And it's one of those where I can't do any of those other tricks where I'm like, what would my life have been like? Right. Who would I be if I, like, I wouldn't be who I am if I went home. I, I probably would have a lot of these same things, only I would mm -hmm. feel better about myself, you know? And mm -hmm. so that understanding or the the lesson that you gave about how it really shaped your values, that's so true for me too because I will never make that mistake again when mm -hmm. somebody needs me like that or when I even have the opportunity to show up for people. I know that so often the thing in front of me feels like the most important thing, but as I age, I'm learning more and more that relationships are really the most important part mm -hmm. of life. That's so much of our happiness, who we are, just the joy that we find in the everyday moments are because of that connection. And and when I need somebody, if I don't make an, a point to show up for other people, then I'm going to find myself in a situation where nobody mm -hmm. shows up for me. So thank you for sharing that part of your story. Oh yeah. Thank you for sharing too. I think it's in talking to people, I, could, I think so many people have similar experiences and it is it's really hard, you know? So I think it is like, it's nice to find some meaning even in that like really painful memory. So we have so much to work with here, basically a whole toolbox of tools for all of the biggest things that we deal with all in under an hour. <laughs> so, no more problems, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, guys, you're good now. So quit therapy. <laughs> I am not a therapist. Don't listen to me. Okay. So thank you so much for everything that you've brought to uh, all of these common emotions. I think we all have experiences with every single one of them. So for listeners that are interested in connecting with you, going deeper into any of these emotions and learning about your book, where's the best place to connect? Yeah. So the book is called Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. And that should be available at any bookseller. And then on Instagram, uh, my co-author and I are at Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E. Website is lizandmolly.com. Um, and I think those are kind of the best places to reach us. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 240. Your challenge for this week is going to be simple. I know this whole episode was like a giant toolbox of different ways to handle things, but I think one of the most important ways that we can really honor ourselves and our feelings and the guidance that they give us is by first accepting that they're okay. There's so many messages about how to be professional by stuffing away your feelings or what's appropriate, what's not, what looks broken and what doesn't. And we forget that within all of these feelings is guidance. This is the way our true self speaks to us. This is how we know when we're not okay. This is how we know when something needs to be addressed. And it's really hard to sit there and listen to the wisdom if we're judging ourselves or beating ourselves up about those feelings the whole time. So when a feeling comes up, first just tell yourself, it is okay that I feel this. Whether it's sadness, anger, grief, or even judgment. <laughs> I judge myself for judging a lot. And I have to remind myself, 
I am human. This is what we do. We judge. And even that dissipates the energy a little bit that's holding me in that one space. So that's all that you have to do. When you feel a big emotion come up, just remind yourself that that's okay. That could be a little voice in your head that you say that consciously. It could be actually sitting there, putting your hands on your heart or putting your hands somewhere else on your body that you feel that emotion. And if you'd like, you can take this a step further. Once you're past that acceptance part, ask yourself, what's in this? How is this guiding you? And make sure that it doesn't have to do with somebody else. (laughs) Like If it's that anger and it's like, how is this guiding you? By telling my husband to do this thing I keep wanting him to do. No, that can be a discussion for later. Instead, ask how your anger is guiding you. How do you want to feel? Are there ways to manage this before you spread it? Is it telling you something about yourself and your boundaries that you need to communicate more clearly later on? No wrong answer here. And this is a good practice to get into because the more that you ask yourself for guidance, the more you'll actually receive it and the louder that voice will become. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 240. If you'd love to support MindLove, my favorite way for you to do that is by joining MindLove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get an ad-free listening experience, early release, bonuses like meditations, and a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only available for premium members. You can also support any of my amazing sponsors, and you can find them all at mindlove.com slash sponsors or by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you do, I'll read your review on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 